Section 4 of Revolution by Mac Reynolds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Harvey. In the morning, Leonid Shvergnik came to the hotel in a McCoyan camera works car loaded with cameras and the various accessories that were available for the basic model. He began gushing the advantages of the McCoyan before they were well out of the hotel. The last thing he said as they trailed out of the hotel's portals was, we'll drive about town, giving you an opportunity to do some snapshots and then possibly to my country dacha where we can have lunch. At the car, he said, may I introduce Anna Fortseva, who has been assigned as your guide interpreter by InTourist for the balance of your stay. Anna, Mr. John Smith. Paul shook hands. She was blonde, as almost all Russian girls are blonde, and with the startling blue eyes. A touch chubby, by Western standards, but less so than the Russian average. She had a disturbing pixie touch around the mouth, out of place in a dedicated revolutionist. The car took off with Schwernick at the wheel. You're actually going to have to take pictures as we go along. We'll have them developed later at the plant. I've told them that you are potentially a very big order. Possibly they'll try and assign one of my superiors to your account after a day or two. If so, I suggest that you merely insist that you feel I am competent and you would rather continue with me. Of course, Paul said. Now then, how quickly can our assistance to you get underway? The question is, Schwernick said, just how much you can do in the way of helping our movement. For instance, can you get advanced type weapons to us? The thirty-eight noiseless slid easily into Paul's hands. Obviously, we can't smuggle sizable military equipment across the border. But here, for instance, is a noiseless, recoilless handgun. We could deliver any reasonable amount within a month. Five thousand? Schwernick asked. I think so. You'd have to cover once they got across the border, of course. How well organized are you? If you aren't, Possibly we can help you there, but not in time to get 5,000 guns to you in a month. Anna was puzzled. How could you possibly get that number across the Soviet borders? Her voice had a disturbing Slavic throatiness. It occurred to Paul Koslov that she was one of the most attractive women he had ever met. He was amused. Women had never played a great part in his life. There had never been anyone who had really basically appealed. But evidently, blood was telling. Here, he had to come back to Russia to find such attractiveness. He said, The Yugoslavs are comparatively open and smuggling across the Adriatic from Italy, commonplace. We'd bring the things you want in that way. Yugoslavia and Poland are on good terms currently, with lots of trade. We'd ship them all by rail from Yugoslavia to Warsaw. Trade between Poland and the USSR is on a massive scale. Our agents in Warsaw would send on the guns in well-concealed shipments. Freight cars aren't searched at the Polish-Russian border. However, your agents would have to pick up the deliveries in Brest or Kobrin before they got as far as Pinsk. Anna said, her voice very low, Visiting in Sweden at the Soviet embassy in Stockholm is a colonel who is at the head of the Leningrad branch of the KGB department in charge of counter-revolution, as they call it. Can you eliminate him? 
Is it necessary? Are you sure that if it's done, it might not raise such a stink that the KGB might concentrate more attention on you? Paul didn't like this sort of thing. It seldom accomplished anything. Anna said, He knows that both Georgi and I are members of the movement. Paul Kosloff gaped at her. You mean your position is known to the police? Shvernik said. Thus far he has kept the information to himself. He found out when Anna tried to enlist his services. Paul's eyes went from one to the other of them in disbelief. Enlist his services? How do you know he hasn't spilled everything? What do you mean he's kept the information to himself so far? Anna said, her voice so loath to be hardly heard. He's my older brother. I'm his favorite sister. How much longer he will keep our secret, I don't know. Under the circumstances, I can think of no answer except that he be eliminated. It came to Paul Koslav that the team on this side could be just as dedicated as he was to his own particular cause. He said, uh, Colonel Fortseva at the Soviet Embassy in Stockholm. Very well. A Hungarian refugee, and will probably be best, if he's caught, the reason for the killing won't point in your direction. Yes, Anna said, her sensitive mouth twisting. In fact, Anastas was in Budapest during the suppression there in 1956. He participated. The Dacia of Leonid Schwernik was in the vicinity of Petrodvorets on the Gulf of Finland, about 18 miles from Leningrad proper. It would have been called a summer bungalow in the States. On the rustic side, three bedrooms, a moderately large living dining room, kitchen, bath, even a carport. Paul Kosloff took a mild satisfaction in deciding that an American in Schwernick's equivalent job could have afforded more of a place than this. Schwernick was saying, I hope it never gets to the point where you have to go on the run. If it does, this house is the center of our activities. At any time, you can find clothing here, weapons, money, food, even a small boat on the waterfront. It would be possible, though difficult, to reach Finland. Right, Paul said. Let's hope there'll never be occasion. Inside, they sat around a small table, over the inevitable bottle of vodka and cigarettes and later coffee. Schwernick said, thus far, we've rambled around hurriedly on a dozen subjects, but now we must become definite. Paul nodded. You come to us and say you represent the West and that you wish to help overthrow the Soviets. Fine. How do we know you do not actually represent the KGB or possibly the MVD? Paul said, I'll have to prove otherwise by actions. He came to his feet and, ignoring Anna, pulled out his shirt tail, unbuttoned the top two buttons of his pants, and unbuckled the money belt beneath. He said, we have no idea what items you'll be wanting from us in the way of equipment, but as you said earlier, all revolutions need money. So here's the equivalent of a 100,000 American dollars, in rubles, of course. He added apologetically, the smallness of the amount is due to bulk. Your Soviet money doesn't come in sufficiently high denominations for a single person to carry really large amounts. He tossed the money belt to the table rearranged his clothing, and returned to his chair. Schwernick said, A beginning, but I am still of the opinion that we should not introduce you to any other members of the organization 
until we have a more definite proof of your background. That's reasonable, Paul agreed. Now, what else? Fiernick scowled at him. You claim you're an American, but you speak as good Russian as I do. I was raised in America, Paul said, but I never became a citizen because of some minor technicality while I was a boy. After I reached adulthood and first began working for the government, it was decided that it might be better, due to my type of specialization, that I continue to remain legally not an American. But actually, you are Russian? I was born here in Leningrad, Paul said evenly. Anna leaned forward. Why then, actually, you're a traitor to Russia, Paul laughed. Look who's talking, a leader of the underground. Anna wasn't amused. But there is a difference in motivation. I fight to improve my country. You fight for the United States and the West. I can't see much difference. We're both trying to overthrow a vicious bureaucracy, he laughed again. You hate them as much as I do. I don't know, she frowned, trying to find words, dropped English and spoken Russian. The communists made mistakes, horrible mistakes, and especially under Stalin, were vicious beyond belief to achieve what they wanted. But they did achieve it. They built our country into the world's strongest. If you're so happy with them, why are you trying to eliminate the commies? You don't make much sense. She shook her head, as though it was he who made no sense. They are through now, no longer needed. A hindrance to progress. She hesitated then. When I was a student, I remember being so impressed by something written by Nehru that I memorized it. He wrote it while in a British jail in 1935. Listen. She closed her eyes and quoted, Economic interests shape the political views of groups and classes. Neither reason nor moral considerations override these interests. Individuals may be converted. They may surrender their special privileges, although this is rare enough, but classes and groups do not do so. The attempt to convert a governing and privileged class into forsaking power and giving up its unjust privileges has therefore always so far failed, and there seems to be no reason whatever to hold that it will succeed in the future. Paul was frowning at her. What's your point? My point is that the communists are in the position Nero speaks of. They're in power and won't let go. The longer they remain in power, after their usefulness is over, the more vicious they become to maintain themselves. Since this is a police state, the only way to get them out is through violence. That's why I find myself in the underground. But I am a patriotic Russian, she turned to him. Why do you hate the Soviet so, Mr. Smith? The American agent shrugged. My grandfather was a member of the minor aristocracy. When the Bolsheviks came to power, he joined Wrangel's White Army. When the Crimea fell, he was in the rear guard. They shot him. That was your grandfather, Schwernick said. Right. However, my own father was a student at the Petrograd University at that time. Left-wing inclined, in fact. I think he belonged to Kerensky's Social Democrats. At any rate, in spite of his upper-class background, he made out all right for a time. In fact, he became an instructor, and our early life wasn't particularly bad. Paul cleared his throat. 
<clears throat> until the purges in the 1930s. It was decided that my father was a Bucharinist right deviationist, whatever that was. They came and got him one night in 1938. My family never saw him again. Paul disliked the subject. To cut it short, when the war came along, my mother was killed in the Nazi bombardment of Leningrad. My brother went into the army and became a lieutenant. He was captured by the Germans when they took Kharkov, along with a hundred thousand or so others of the Red Army. When the Soviets, a couple of years later, pushed back into Poland, he was recaptured. Anna said, You mean liberated from the Germans? Recaptured is the better word. The Soviets shot him. It seems that officers of the Red Army aren't allowed to surrender. Anna said painfully, How did you escape all this? My father must have seen the handwriting on the wall. I was only five years old when he sent me to London to a cousin. A year later, we moved to the States. Actually, I had practically no memories of Leningrad, very few of my family. However, I am not very fond of the Soviets. No, Anna said softly. Shvernik said, And what was your father's name? Theodore Koslov. Shvernik said, I studied French literature under him. Anna stiffened in her chair, and her eyes went wide. Koslov, she said. You must be Paul Koslov? Paul poured himself another small vodka. In my field, it is a handicap to have a reputation. I didn't know it had extended to the man in the street on this side of the Iron Curtain. End of Section 4. Recording by Paul Harvey.